We are here today to wrap up a seven-part summer sermon series, which is a little bit of a tongue twister, but we're here to wrap up this series called Another in the Fire, Trusting God to Do the Impossible. This series has been a, sort of an exploration of all the different ways God comes through when it seems like there's no way out of a mess you're in. He comes through. He, he claims victory when all seems lost. And some of y'all remember this whole idea for this series was kind of a last minute audible. I was supposed to preach through the book of Revelation through the summer. And then we announced the news of the story needing to find a new home by the end of this year and just all kinds of, uh, of upheaval and disruption to our best laid plans uh, for the rest of this year. And so this series really was born out of that. Like how does God come through in a season like the one we're going through as a church? when we don't know what the future holds. Even the short-term future is full of questions for us. How does God come through in seasons like this? So that's what we're here to talk about today as we wrap up the series with uh, the story of Esther, who is one of my all-time favorite Bible figures. So uh, listen, y'all probably know if you know me, when I get excited about a story in the Bible, you might be here a while. I'm gonna do my very best, all right? I got Astros tickets today, so you're not gonna be here forever, okay? I promise, okay? So 110 game, you'll be out by at least 105, okay? So <laughs> no, we got an 11 o'clock service. Don't worry. Newcomers are like, what am I in for? All right, just it's gonna be fine, okay? So a running theme throughout this series has been that the more you fall in love with God, in, in particular, the more you are passionate about Jesus, the less friendly the world will become to you. And that, I don't say that as a sort of indictment on the world, or I'm not here to condemn the world. I just, I'm stating some facts here. And the more faithful you decide to be to Jesus and to his word, the less friendly a place the world can become sometimes. That's just historically speaking the way it is. You cannot be a truly like completely faithful Christian and completely blend into the world. And some of us have tried to have the world and God and we've gotten neither out of the deal because that's just not how it works. You can be faithful to God or you can go with the ways of the world, but you really can't have both. And so um, the, the, the question is, how do you stay, remain steadfast and faithful even when the pressure heats up? Okay, um, Jesus warned us about this phenomenon years and years ago. And I know it's not like we're under the gun as Christians in America. I'm not the kind of sound the alarm, chicken little, sky is falling. Like, you know, they're coming for our guns today and our heads tomorrow. Like, I'm not, that's not my deal. That's not what I, what I say. I'm not playing the victim card. But I am saying when Jesus said what he said to his disciples, he's also saying it to us. And this is one of the warnings that he issued in Matthew chapter 10, it was very specific. He said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd or wise as snakes and as innocent or harmless as doves. Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. All right. 
So in light of this, I wanna offer this question up. Esther is gonna challenge us all to ask this question about ourselves. How can God do something extraordinary through an ordinary person like me? That's our question that I really want you to, to lean into today. How can God do something extraordinary with my life even though I'm just an ordinary person? Um, some of us, I am afraid, uh, have missed the point of, of Christianity, and it's oftentimes because of the way we do church, if I'm just being real with you. We, even at the story, we're just as bad as any other church. We present Christianity as a spectator sport. And I'm in the game, and the band's in the game, and the leaders are in the game, and the people on the screen for the announcement videos, they, they, they're probably in the game. And there's a few volunteers that are kind of in the game. But most people who just come to church, just you're, you're here to watch. And, uh, you know, when I'm, I'm standing up here going, hey, no, it's, it's not just up to the preachers. It's not just up to the leaders. It's not just up to the key volunteers to get in the game and make a difference and change the world in the name of God, do his will. No, it's up to all of us. A lot of people just want to go, hey, I'm just here for the show, preacher. I'm here for the donuts and coffee and give me something nice to start my week. I'm here to be encouraged. Just encourage me. Give me what I'm here for. I'll put some money in the basket. We're good. And, uh, and yet, even though that's how churches have, unfortunately, set up this whole deal, that's not how Christianity really works. Because this is a relationship you're being invited into. Not with the church, not with an institution. A relationship with God who made you in his image and has you on this earth for a purpose. And it's not just a purpose to live a long, good life and to acquire wealth and to have a good name and a pretty wife or a handsome husband and great kids and the picket fence life. That's not why you're here. God made you in his image and set you on this earth at a time and place of his choosing to change the world, to bring hope, to proclaim his gospel to the world around you in his name. Now, if that sounds overwhelming or threatening, it's supposed to. Because you're not supposed to know how to do that. Bible promises in our weakness, he is strong. Jesus said, you won't need the words to say. The Father, the Spirit of the Father will give you the words to say, all right? So um, part of learning to trust God is trusting that, that in every season of your life, regardless of whatever excuses you have, God has got you there for some purpose, for some reason. And you might be here thinking, well, I'm just a whatever. I'm just a kid. I'm just a student, right? I'm just figuring out my life here, pastor. I'm just a young adult. I'm just paying off my college loans. I'm just getting my career started. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just. Until you're just retired or you're just in a nursing home or you're just whatever, crossing over. Like you can make excuses up to the very end. Every season of your life will come with excuses. Trusting God means learning to see how every season of your life can have a purpose, a reason, a God-ordained reason that's bigger than what you might imagine, all right? So now, when I, I can't believe I, I, I am even saying these words because for the longest time, every time a Christian said, there's a reason for everything, like, like, like everything has its reasons. He's the reason for the season. Whatever the Christians used, I don't know. It's like, it used to just drive me nuts. Yeah, honestly, 
And I was such a cynic, I would roll my eyes and just, I, I, would, I would give them attitude about it, really. Everything happens for a reason, Christians. Really, everything. Everything. What about, what about, you know, just fill in the blank with the worst possible thing going on in the world, right? What about this? What about me? So God wanted me to feel the way that I feel today. God wanted me to be miserable 95% of the time. God wanted to make a world full of pain and suffering. God wanted all this injustice, all this inequity. This is the way God wanted it, Christians. Really, everything happens for a reason. And I would roll my eyes, such a cynic. But eight and a half years ago, finally, I invited Jesus to take his proper place in my life. And ever since that day, I've been learning every day one lesson after another about what it really means to say something like everything happens for a reason because it's true. Biblically, it's true. But it's just a small-minded way that we look at it sometimes when we go, well, if everything happens for a reason, then everything that happens must be because God wanted it that way. No, 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 that's not what it means. In fact, if you're looking for causation, for the messes you find yourself in, nine times out of 10, the causation reason is some choices you made, right? Like if I'm in this mess, it's because I made that choice and that choice and that choice, and that's why I'm here, right? God's up in heaven going, no, bro, you did this, (laughs) like, okay? So that's not what we mean when we say everything has a purpose and a reason, every season of your life has a reason. What we mean with that is in spite of our propensity to get ourselves in all kinds of messes, with our own choices and our own free will, in spite of that, God still is willing to enter the mess and alongside of us, make a reason out of it. As he walks you through it, this mess you've got yourself in, he makes the reasons known when you let him. So every mess I've gotten myself in, I'm able to look back and see not only God walking me through it, getting me out of it. But as he did that, I'm able to see how he brought a reason to the surface by making me stronger, by making me more mature, wiser, more prepared to come alongside someone else who is today in the dark place I was in last week and not only help them get out of the mess, but help them to see God's reasons as they come out. And that's just the gospel. And that's what what it means to say everything has its reasons. Every season has its purpose. No matter what mess you're in, there is something God can do to enter in and show you, teach you, grow you, mature you, and strengthen you for his better plan. As he walks you out and delivers you from that mess you made, more than likely, he can set you up to serve him, to make a difference. If you let him, no. That's what brings us to today's story. Again, one of my favorites, it's from the Old Testament. It's the story of Esther, who was born around 500 BC. And the story, as it's told in the book of Esther in the Old Testament, there's two books named after women in the Bible, Ruth and Esther. This story has specific dates in it. And this is a historical story. This isn't isn't a, a fictional tale. It happens between 485 and 475 BC. So the story begins probably around the time Esther was 15 years old, all right? And and in chapter one of Esther's story, we're not introduced to Esther so much yet as we are introduced to the king of Persia. The Persian empire had conquered the Babylonian empire that had conquered 
Jerusalem. So Judea belonged to Persia now. And Esther, a Jewish girl, was born in, in Persia, in Susa, the capital city. Okay? And the king of Persia, real dude named Xerxes. Xerxes I is introduced in chapter one as, well, let me just say, not a very good dude. All right? Just not a very good guy. We're introduced to him as he's throwing himself a party. Like, who does that? They, they throw himself a, par- a party in his own honor, like Michael Scott style from The Office, like who always threw himself parties. That's, that's who we're introduced to. Just imagine Michael Scott, but with all the power, all right? So Xerxes, the most powerful man in that part of the world, throwing himself a party, getting sloppy drunk, on wine with his boys, hanging out in the palace with his buddies, getting sloppy drunk. And when he's reached a certain point of inebriation, King Xerxes decides he needs some entertainment, some female entertainment. And he calls his wife through a messenger and commands her to come and basically look good for his friends. Come and parade yourself in front of all my drunk friends so they can see what a hottie I get to go home to every night. A real, just a jerk move. He's shallow, he's demeaning. It's ridiculous, and, and, and this is who Xerxes was. Now, the first plot twist in Esther's story wasn't Esther, but it was Vashti, the king's wife, who was known far and wide for being beautiful, but she also apparently had a head on her shoulders because she refused to go and be made a show pony in front of her drunk husband and all of his drunk friends. She said no, and all the men at the party were like, they can do that? Like, they didn't even know. And a woman had that word in her vocabulary. That's how bad it was for women in that time and place. It was a shock that the queen could say no to her husband, but she did. And all the men in the party panicked. Literally in chapter one of Esther, all the men are like, wait, wait, wait. If the king's wife can say no to him, what can our wives say to us? And they begged him to pass a law that required women to obey their husbands no matter what, which he did. And then he disposed of Vashti. And that was the end of her reign as queen. So that meant he had an opening in his harem. Instead of jumping on Bumble, uh, (laughs) creating an online profile, uh, the king decided he thought up this really toxic beauty pageant, a really twisted contest that, that hundreds of virgins, young girls, teenage girls, mid-teens, throughout the empire, the prettiest ones, were to be brought to the palace and dolled up and given the right foods and skin treatment so their skin would glow, and then he would pick his favorite one. He would have their way with who knows how many of them, and then he would pick his favorite one, the one that pleased him the most. Sick, right? But that's the intro to the story of Esther, all right? And and we're gonna pick it up from there. Esther chapter two, verses five through 11, and verses 17 and 18 go like this. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Mordecai, top 10 favorite dudes in the Bible, okay? Seriously, you need to know about Mordecai. We're gonna read about him today. Mordecai, who's... uh, grandfather, basically, had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Joachim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So Mordecai and Esther have a story already. She was orphaned at a young age. 
And he took her in when he, he didn't have to. So Mordecai became her father and she became his daughter by choice. Mordecai's choice, all right? So when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed about the beauty pageant and everything, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Young women in this context just meant post-puberty, pre-marriage. So mid-teens, probably, okay, all these women. Hegai was a, uh, uh, I almost said uh, a eunuch is what he was. Uh, Hegai was a eunuch because kings liked to have eunuchs take care of their harems. You can figure out why, right? It's a safe choice, all right? You didn't want your most virile soldiers watching your harem. You wanted a eunuch (laughs) watching your harem. Esther was also taken. She pleased Hegai and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality or her family background as a Jew because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so for her good, for her safety. Every day, I love this, every day Mordecai walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem just to find out how Esther was. <laughs> Isn't that a sweet image? This man was leaving his day job every day just to, just to get within earshot of where Esther was to make sure, she, it was like she was in daycare or something, like a father concerned about his little girl, but this girl was teenager. She was grown more or less, but he still came to check on her to see what was happening to her. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any other woman any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet for all of his nobles and officials. All right. At this point, this is a little disclaimer. I think it's very important for us to not romanticize this story. I've seen a movie, I think it was called like One Night with the King, which is like something Nicholas Sparks would call and uh, title his novel. You know, it's like One Night with the King, like they were in love. Children's Bibles will often portray this as though it was love at first sight and Esther loved him and he liked her and he sent her a note and she circled yes. It's like all this silliness. This, listen, this is not a romantic story. Y'all get that, right? This is a nightmare for Esther. She's not lucky. She's not privileged, fortunate to have been chosen. She was ripped from her home, from the adoptive father who loved her. All of her hopes and dreams for her life were were taken away from her. She had no choice in the matter. She was dolled up, painted up, fed all kinds of foods, and then paraded around like a show pony, objectified by men, stripped naked in front of a stranger who had all the power and made vulnerable, taken advantage of sexually by this powerful man, the most powerful man she knew. She had no choice. I imagine every part of Esther's story to this point was brutal. So don't don't think of it as a love story. It wasn't, at least not between Esther and Xerxes, okay? Um, But Esther somehow, nevertheless, persisted. And this is an interesting thing about Esther. At her young age, she was still able to keep her composure and remember who she was. 
It's almost like she already knew at such a young age that God can enter into any mess. He can come into any season we find ourselves in and he can bring us out of it, making a reason for it along the way. It's like Esther already knew that. She trusted him to do that. Even though she was, you know, 14, 15, 16 years of age, all right? So uh, an amazing young woman that we're dealing with. And, and it didn't take long for the purposes for Esther's place began to be known. Just shortly after she was made queen, uh, Mordecai, who was uh, still hanging around the palace every day, even after she was crowned, he's still just like walking around the palace, like checking on Esther, you know, just making sure his little girl's okay and that she's not hurting or not needing anything. He's just the sweetest dad. But while he is there, he overhears a conversation between some officials and they are plotting an assassination of King Xerxes. Mordecai immediately goes and tells Esther. Esther tells Xerxes and the king's life is spared, all right? So in chapter three of Esther, we're introduced to really, I think the most vile, uh, the most vile villain in the Old Testament, maybe with the exception of Jezebel, who was pretty bad. And there are others. There's a lot of villains in the Old Testament. But this guy even had a villain's name. His name was Haman. <laughs> Which is, if you're writing a, a book, a story, and you need a villain's name, Haman. It's a pretty good villain's name. And this guy was the best of the best in terms of villainy. He was an egomaniac and an opportunist. And after years of kissing the right behinds and playing the right politics, he had had his big break. And Xerxes had actually appointed him to the highest post possible for a Persian uh, uh, dignitary, for a Persian nobleman like Haman. Haman was uh, King Xerxes' right-hand man, and he loved it. And it went to his head, because right after Xerxes appointed Haman to that post, Haman said, hey, you know what, Xerxes? I'm walking around town, and people aren't really, they're not showing any respect and if I'm going to be your guy, they need to respect me like they respect you. And so, and so he asked Xerxes to pass a law that everyone who saw him walking through the city had to fall down and, and pay him homage. And everyone in Persia did, except one man. Guess who? Mordecai. Because he was a man of principle. He refused to bow down before this man or any man. And it drove Haman especially crazy because in his twisted worldview, a foreign Jew like Mordecai should be the first person to bow down and pay honor and homage to me, Mordecai, to, to me, Haman, right? So Mordecai should have been on his knees first. And so Haman again hatches a plot, not just to punish Mordecai, but Haman is so filled with rage that he wants to take out all of people, all the people who are like Mordecai, all of Mordecai's people, all the Jewish people, not knowing that by passing such a law, he would be signing the death warrant for the queen because she had not made her ethnicity known, okay? So that's how the plot thickens in the book of Esther. The king passes the law, it becomes known that this is what his plans are, and and Mordecai hears about this and he, he is just, he's terrified. He goes back to Esther again and says, look, the king is about to take us all out. And this is how that conversation goes down. Esther chapter four, verses nine through 16. Hathak, this is a, a, a messenger, right? A messenger 
who's going between Esther and Mordecai, went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai said. Then she instructed Hathak to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned or invited, the king has but one law. They will be put to death. So Mordecai's like, you got to go see your boy. And Esther's like, uh-uh. <laughs> he kills people that do that. <laughs> no, thank you, right? So then she says, unless he extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? This is the line you've heard from Esther. This is on uh, half the Christian homes, walls uh, across America today. Who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. It's Esther's uh, brave heart moment, right? What a line. If I perish, I perish. 15, 16 years old. If I perish, I perish. Now, Here's the really cool thing about Esther's story that sets it apart from the other 65 books in the Bible. Esther's book is the only one in all of scripture that never mentions God. Isn't that weird? Some of y'all are like, I've read it a hundred times. I know God's in there. He's never mentioned. He's never mentioned by name. No God is mentioned by name. There's no mention of God explicitly at all. Now, that doesn't mean that God's not in there. God is implied all over this story. God, we can assume, is the reason why Mordecai wouldn't bow down before Haman, right? Because a Jewish person is, is uh, instructed not to treat any man like he's God. You only bow to God. And so that's why Mordecai did that, you know? That's why Mordecai believed that Esther was in this place at this time for this reason, to save her people, that's why Esther told Mordecai to go and fast, y'all. That's a spiritual practice. That's a habit of prayer that Jewish people were accustomed to. Go and fast. So God is all in it, but he only implicitly, never explicitly. And the question is why? Scholars have wrestled with that question for centuries. And my favorite theory is that they were, uh, the, the author, who I believe was Mordecai, because I, I just impartial to Mordecai. I think he probably wrote it. It's an anonymous book. But, but the theory goes that the author of this story wanted to, to convey the sensitivity of living faithfully for God in a, a hostile environment. So this is literally what it would look like to be faithful to God in a place and time when being faithful to God explicitly, overtly, would be a punishable offense. Okay? Now, this is true to our history as Christians as well. Maybe not as much these days, 
But in the, one of the coolest things about Christianity is looking back in, throughout history and seeing how this movement has survived. Even the first generation of Christians had to figure out how to do what the author of Esther is trying to demonstrate, how to be faithful, how to not be ashamed of God and his message for the world, but also how to not end up dead today. And one of the ways that they did this is traced back to this famous Christian symbol known as the ichthus, right? The fish, you know the fish symbol, right? The fish and and then atheists were like, let's put feet on it and call it a Darwinian fish. And then Christians were like, let's have a Christian fish eating the Darwin fish. And then the Darwinians were like, let's have a dinosaur holding the Christian fish. <laughs> anyway, it turned into a whole battle, right? In the late 90s, you kids have no idea how intense the fish debate got in the late 90s, okay? So in the beginning of the story, that fish was code language. They couldn't be walking around, you know, uh, using a cross as code language, that was too explicit. So the Christians who were on the run from the Roman officials had to figure out a way to communicate with other Christians in public spaces. And one of the ways that they did that is that in casual conversations, hanging around in some courtyard or something, one of them would draw half the fish with his foot, like, which um, it's an awkward motion, but just like, you know, it's like, <laughs> I don't know. Seems weird. I just kind of draw it in the dirt. What you think? How you doing? And then the other guy, if he's a Christian, would draw the other half of the fish, just like that. And then the two of them knew that it was safe to talk about Jesus and to share the, you know, who they really are with each other. This kind of cool underground coded language to me is just, it's invigorating because I, I, I'm reminded what the Christian movement has endured, what it's all about, what it might be like again one day, who knows, for us or for future generations. But, but uh, you know, Somehow that really cool thing from the first century became like the opposite of cool by the late 20th century when soccer moms all over America were sticking it to the back of their minivans and stuff. It became a little less cool, but it, nevertheless, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, that untold numbers of Christians have been willing to put everything on the line in hostile territory to continue to be faithful, even if it meant they couldn't overtly talk about God by name in every uh, circumstance, all right? So this was the case with Esther as well. She risked her life to go see the king. The king allowed her to come in. And when she did, he spared her life by, by doing the scepter thing and she touched it and the whole routine ritual. And then the king was really cool about it. He was like, so what do you want? <laughs> he didn't kill her or anything. And, uh, <laughs> and, and she was like, she was smart, because the minute he had mercy on her, remember what Jesus said about being wise, shrewd as serpents? The minute he had mercy on her, my instinct, if I was in her shoes, would have been to just spill it all at once. So, so your, your boy, Haman is a bad, bad guy and he wants to kill us all. And all my people are gonna die because of him. And by the way, I'm a Jew, surprise, sorry. So I would have just spilled it all, all at once. That's not what she did. You know what Esther said? She's like, uh, you know, I was thinking, honey, sweetie, I love it when you drink. <laughs> you become such a nice guy when you're sloppy drunk. And I would like to throw a party with the best wine in your honor today. And I want you to bring your bestie, Haman, because he's a lot of fun too. And so she works him. Esther, teenage girl, works the most powerful man in her world. All right? And he agrees. Sure, that sounds good. Let's go drink. 
you know, day drinking is awesome. So she throws a party in the afternoon and he, he and Haman show up. Well, when the party starts, he's like, all right, now, you know, I'm a little tipsy. Now tell me what you really want. Like he's onto her a little bit, right? She's like, no, 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 honey, I just like spending time with you. <laughs> and that's a, a paraphrase, all right? So I just like hanging out with you. So I want to throw you another party just like this one tomorrow. She's wise as a serpent, y'all. And, and Xerxes and Haman are like, cool, we'll be, we'll be here tomorrow. We'll be ready to drink. And so they finish their party and go home that night. Xerxes getting ready for bed that night is going over some of the royal uh, uh, like records, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and he is reminded of the time that his life was saved by Mordecai. And he realizes he never rewarded Mordecai. And that's what he went to bed reading the night before the next party. The next day, Haman shows up for a little pre-party meeting. And, and, and Xerxes is like, yo, um, what do you think, Haman, I should do for the, the guy in my kingdom that I want to give the highest honor to? And what's Haman think? What's the egomaniac think? Wow, this is gonna be good. <laughs> this is about me. It's gotta be about me. So King, here's what I think. I think you should take your favorite robe, the one that smells like you, and, and have one of your servants put it on this guy's back and let him have it. And then take your favorite horse, a horse you've ridden, a horse with your crest on its head, and then have your servant help this guy, me, this guy up onto the horse and then parade me, him around the city going, this is the man the king wants to honor. This is the, way, the man the king wants to honor. And the king's like, that sounds great. So Haman, take this robe, take Tonto the horse or whatever. I don't know what the horse's name is called, but, but take my favorite horse and go find Mordecai and, and help him on the horse and then parade him around the city and tell everybody what an honorable man he is. It was the worst day of Haman's life. It's a humiliating moment for a man like Haman, but he had to do it. At least afterward, he had a party to look forward to. And at the second party, he and the king are getting drunk again. And, and once again, we have an, an exchange that looks a lot like the first party. This is Esther 7, verses 1 through 6. And I'll, I'll wind down with this. It says, so the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. As they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? What do you really want? It will be given to you. What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it'll be granted. And Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing you, the king. And King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Haman's like whistling in the corner. <laughs> He's like, ooh. And Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. You can imagine what happened next. Haman met his demise and Esther and her people were spared because Esther had the courage to walk toward danger when others needed help. And Esther had the wisdom 
in the moment when the pressure was on, she had the wisdom to say what she needed to say. Nothing more and nothing less. It's an incredible story of courage. How not only Esther trusted God, but how God used Esther as shrewd as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. Esther, who is actually the victim in this story. A teenage girl, objectified again and again. God used her to exact his justice and to do his will. And the story is, the message is, that Esther may have seemed powerless in every worldly way, but God doesn't need worldly power to change the world. He never has, and he never will. In fact, he seems to really enjoy using seemingly powerless people to do the most powerful things in his name. And Esther, who knew she had no real worldly power, still believed two things. She knew two things to be true. First, she knew that there were people who needed saving. And second, she knew that her God was a savior. And that's all she needed to know. And you know, I don't think it's that different for us. I think we muddy the waters and we make it about being good Christians who go to church a certain number of times a month and check off all the boxes and we're polite and nice. And that's not all this life is. The the purpose and meaning for your life goes much deeper than that. In fact, it, it points right back to those same two things that Esther knew. There are people who need saving and God is still a savior. And there are people in your life, there will be people in your path this week, whether you know it or not right now, who need a lifeline. They're they're languishing hopelessly. They're just drifting through this life, feeling like it's meaningless, feeling depressed, feeling lost. They've they've bought in hook, line, and sinker to the, the lies this world has given them, the promises this world has made, promises that will never be delivered upon. Like if you just work hard enough and make enough of yourself and make yourself a good name, then you'll be happy. No, you won't. People believe those lies and then it leads them into this dark place. People need saving. And there are people who literally need their lives to be saved. There are vulnerable people. That's why we team up with with LifeHouse to save vulnerable unborn babies and, and mothers who are at risk, we intervene. For that reason, there's literal life and death on the line. Church under the bridge, which I know we kind of hit pause on in COVID for, for COVID reasons, but it's, it's coming back. There's real need there, real like, like, like bread of life kind of lives need to be saved. But that's not all it means to speak of God as a, as a savior in our world because it just seems to me like more and more the people in our lives who need saving have enough food in their bellies. They have enough money in their bank account, but they're empty where it counts most. And God has already positioned you to speak his salvation into their situation because he's walked you out of a similar place. Not only did he show you the way out of that place you were in, but he made a reason for it on the way out. And now there's someone else who needs the way out that you once needed. You don't have to be a preacher or an expert or well-versed in scripture. You don't even have to know what to say. Jesus promises that the spirit of your father will give you what to say. Jesus promises that. 
That's their story shows us. You don't even have to like be a, a crazy like Christian and use all the right Christianese and, and say it's all about, you know, Jesus by name. You can just be Jesus to the world. You can just express the love of Christ and the saving work of God to those around you. And that's enough. You don't have to know everything there is to know. All you need is to know two things. There are people who need saving and that God is still a savior. Praise God. Let's pray together. God, give us courage to step up, to see that there's a greater purpose and meaning for this life you've given us. God, we confess that we're just complacent sometimes. And we're not even looking for opportunities to be agents of salvation anymore because we're just wrapped up in our own busyness and our own ways of thinking and living and getting from one point to the next, one day to the next. Lord, open our eyes to see the real need around us, physical and spiritual, emotional needs, people who are drowning. Lord, all around us, help us to see others in their distress as you saw us in ours. And if there's someone in this room right now who's drowning, Lord, I pray that you give them relief, that they open their eyes and invite you into their mess so that you can not only show them the way out, but you can make a reason for the mess they've been in, bring a purpose out of it as you set them free from it. We love you so much for your faithfulness, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.